0: Someone's not happy. Test, test, test. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Something's on. It's just not very loud. Can you hear me back there? There we go. Good morning. Loud enough to keep Vic awake, please. Oh, this is not a happy moment. Really, it'll be okay. I won't be preaching that long. No. Uh, before I get started, uh, I want to introduce you to somebody. Uh, and she is the most loving individual you will will ever meet. Actually, I'm not going to introduce anybody to you. I was just trying to get you to think for a second. If I did introduce somebody right now, what would you expect her to look like? With that description, she's the most loving person, right? Your your mind's thinking, okay, what would qualify for loving actions that would cause you to say she's the most? Or, Or if I just did this. If I said I want to introduce you to somebody, he is the most loving person. <laughs> uh, seated in that chair right there. Um, nobody more loving in that chair than him. Uh, if just if I said she is the most loving, then I said he is the most loving, would would you think of the same description? You think in your mind, okay, before you even introduce me to this person, what am I thinking that they're gonna be like that qualifies you to say that they're so loving? And and would it be different if this person was male or female? Would you think that maybe what characterizes their life as loving might be different? And then let's introduce this factor. Depending on whether you're a man or a woman in here, what do you think is loving? Right? If you're a man in the room here today, you're thinking something about what, what what, comes to mind when you think about somebody being so loving. And if you're a woman here, you're having some thoughts about And yeah, there may be similarities, but there might also be some vast differences. Right? Through the years, I've noticed in meeting with couples, uh, I've noticed this in families as well, that... Love given is not always love received. If you've done any marriage counseling, you have bumped into that. If you've done any marriage counseling and you haven't bumped into that, then you're not doing very good marriage counseling, I can promise you. And you sit down with a spouse and you hear that spouse say, I, you know, my husband just doesn't love me. And then he's sitting across the room listening to her say that, wondering, What do you mean? And he begins to list off the things for him. And, you know, we make jokes about some of this stuff. But, you know, in reality, there's, there's truth to it. You know, the guy who says, what do you mean? I, I get up every morning. I go to work. I work hard. I, I provide for the family. Right? I, we, we go on family vacations. I, I do this and I do that and I do this. And, and yet she just feels unloved. There was a book that was written a number of years ago. The title of it is interesting, and the premise of it is actually interesting as well. I don't necessarily recommend some of the elements of the book, but a book called, I think it was Five Love Languages. And, and what it highlighted was the fact that somebody can be looking for love to feel a certain way and to come to them a certain way. And if it's coming this way rather than coming this way, they don't, they don't feel loved. Right, I, I use the illustration that sometimes in a marriage, you know, the the wife is tuning in to receive love at you know ninety nine point five FM. You know, she's she's just waiting for it to come, and the husband is broadcasting at one o two point three, full time. And you have this couple come together, and the wife is like, "I just don't feel like my husband loves me," and he can't understand at all why that is. All right, well. If love at a human level is a little bit of a challenge for us to talk about, what will happen when I say, today I want to introduce you to the God who is love? Now, this is going to be a little bit of a challenge. I mean, you'd think, you know, and I appreciate Peter, Jesus loves me, this I know. Right? Not a more, is there a more simple concept in scripture? No. And there probably isn't one that we want more and we desire more than this one. And if you know yourself, the moment you desire something, you open that thing up to tamper with it, right? If you don't want something, if you don't care about something, you're indifferent to it, you leave those things alone. But when you want something, I wanna be loved. Oh, you're gonna mess with stuff now. And so we come to this very, very important doctrine of the love of God. But we find out, and we're going to see this today as we look through this topic, it's, it's, it's complicated for us to appreciate and to sometimes receive, because you're going to find out as we look through, actually, I'm going to need to take two weeks on this, but you're going to, you're going to find out that sometimes God is broadcasting at one bandwidth and, and we are tuned into another. And then we're wondering whether God loves us or not. And we're missing out on huge benefits and blessings of God's love. I put two agendas in your outline concerning the structure of the message. One, uh, I hope to adjust our perspective so we can more fully see the love of God. And second, to observe and learn from the love of God in the life of King David. And we will get to him in just a moment. But let me make an introductory uh thought for a second. Why our perspective needs adjusting on this topic? Why does our perspective on the love of God, our perspective, the way in which we come to it, why does that need some adjustment? Three quick points. One, uh, this topic, the love of God, is often treated definitively. I mean by that often for folks who God is is being defined by this one dynamic. Above all else, and perhaps to the neglect sometimes of all else, God is love. And so love for some of us is defining for us who God is, and therefore we're going to run into some challenges if that's the approach we have. And let me give you, I've got a number of quotes, more than normal here today, Uh, hopefully... To to let you see that when you come to this topic, as simple as it sounds, uh, for most theologians, it is rather complicated. A.W. Tozer says, the Apostle John by the Spirit wrote, God is love. And some have taken his words to be a definitive statement concerning the essential nature of God. This is a great error. If literally God is love, then literally love is God. God and we are duty-bound to worship love as the only God there is. We destroy the concept of personality in God and deny outright all his attributes, save one. And that one we substitute for God. It expresses the way God is in his unitary being, as do the other words, holiness, justice, faithfulness, and truth. Because God is immutable, he always acts like himself. And because he is unity, listen, he never suspends one of his attributes in order to exercise another. Right? God, God's perfections, God's attributes do not exist in isolation from one another. You can't just lop off one of them, isolate it and study it in and of itself. It's, it's just, it doesn't exist in God that way and so as we come to these things individually we need to be careful what we're doing as we study them. D.A. Carson, I mentioned his book last week, has written a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's kind of a challenging title. One would not think that the doctrine of the love of God is difficult but when one studies it you find out it is. An interesting book just came across a couple months ago. By a guy named Jonathan Lehman wrote a book called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. I mean, where are these titles coming from? The Surprising Offense of God's Love. If there were one thing that wouldn't be offensive, wouldn't it be the love of God? Well, apparently, there's elements in Scripture of the love of God that might cross the lines of offense. Well, Carson is helpful in his book. He says, in an important book, Marsha Whitten, he's quoting from another book, Marsha Witten surveys what is being preached in the Protestant pulpit. Her book abounds in lengthy quotations from these sermons, and they are immensely troubling. There's a powerful tendency to present God through characterizations of his inner states with an emphasis on his emotions. Let me just say this, and we'll get to this next week. Uh, That would not be wrong to do. This quote doesn't quite contain that, that that would not be a wrong thing to do. You'll find God presents himself that way in Scripture in some places. But she says it's an emphasis on his emotions, which closely resemble those of human beings. God is more likely to feel than to act, to think than to say. Many of the sermons depict a God whose behavior is regular, patterned, and predictable. Now, how many of you guys have read the Bible enough to be surprised by God? How many of you have found that you you thought you had this aspect of God figured out, and then over here he goes and does that, and it just freaks us out, right? He is portrayed in terms of the consistency of his behavior or the conformity of his actions to the single rule of love. With such sentimentalizing of God multiplying in Protestant churches, it does not take much to see how difficult maintaining a biblical doctrine of the love of God can be. So that would be one issue, this tendency to define God out of saying God is love and we were defining him that way would be an issue why we need to adjust our perspective. Secondly, our perspective is often narrowed and a limited view of God's love. Quite often we we have approached the love of God with ourselves having a very limited workable definition for what love is. And so, therefore, we have narrowed the parameters to which God may love us. And you could have God loving you in multiple categories, and yet you could be sitting here today feeling like, God doesn't love me. Why would you say that? Well, because I'm looking for the love of God to come through this little straw that I'm sucking on right here. And if I don't perceive it right there, well, then God doesn't love me. And so one of the things we need to do in this study is to open our understanding of how the love of God comes to us from a straw to a river because it comes to us in multiple ways. Again, Mr. Carson says, if people believe in God at all today, the overwhelming majority hold that this God, however he, she, or it may be understood, is a loving being. But that is what makes the task of the Christian witness so daunting For this widely disseminated belief in the love of God is set with increasing frequency in some matrix other than biblical theology. The result is that when informed Christians, right, informed from the Bible, talk about the love of God, they mean something very different from what is meant in the surrounding culture. To put it another way, we live in a culture in which many other and complementary truths about God are widely disbelieved. I do not think that what the Bible says about the love of God can long survive at the forefront of our thinking if it is abstracted from the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the providence of God, or the personhood of God, to mention only a few non-negotiable elements of basic Christianity. The result, of course, is that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. Now, none of us would be unfamiliar with this process. We've done it in our own lives, and we know lots of folks who do as well. What I would term the human editing of God, right, where we come to God, you know, the most profound example of this was actual editing, Thomas Jefferson, might have been very helpful in framing the Constitution as the founding fathers of this nation, but he was no friend of Christianity. Mr. Jefferson approached the Bible and found many things in it to which he did not take a liking. So he literally took scissors and cut out of the Bible the things that he did not agree with. He edited the Bible so that it would fit who he was. Now, we're not too far removed from that. We, we don't use scissors and we, we actually don't wanna lay claim to having done that. But sometimes we approach God and, and who God is and how God is and we edit Him. And we make much of this aspect of God because we like that aspect of God, we make much of it. And this one over here, we kinda of don't understand so we don't study it and we leave it alone and we let it be small in our view. And so if there was some kind of a flow chart here, we'd have our favorites. We study a lot, we meditate on a lot, we like the messages about that, but then these over here that are very small, we're editing God. Right? Nowhere does God give us permission to clip off an arm or a toe or a piece of him because we don't understand it or we don't particularly care for it. But once we've done that, and let's be honest, we've all done that. So we, we come up to God and we edit him, and we make him look like, Venus de Milo or something, you know, missing arms and feet and body parts have fallen off. And then we say, God is love. And we take our understanding of love, our human concepts of love, our experiences of love, definitions of love from what's worked for us and what hasn't worked for us, what we've been exposed to, what we haven't been exposed to, and we lay that over God. We mold it around him and we say, God is love. And when we do that, we give God permission to love us only in the ways that we have described love or understand love. So we can't come to this doctrine and just loosely say, God is love. There's too much of us in this. There's too much imperfection in this and too much of a limited view of God in this. And the result, last point, the result is actually a diminished experience of the love of God in the life of a believer. If we find ourselves in these previous two categories, then then my great hope is in looking at this doctrine more carefully, we will actually open our lives to the love of God in a huge, enormous way that God intended for us to experience his love. J.I. Packer says this term, quote from Scripture, God is love. It is not an abstract definition which stands alone, but a summing up from the believer's standpoint, of what the whole revelation set forth in Scripture tells us about its author. This statement presupposes all the rest of the biblical witness to God. The God of whom John is speaking is the God who made the world, who judged it by the flood, who called Abraham and made him, made of him a nation, who chastened his Old Testament people by conquest, captivity, and exile, who sent his son to save the world, who cast off unbelieving Israel, and shortly before John wrote, had destroyed Jerusalem. And who would one day judge the world in righteousness? It is this God, says John, who is love. So this, this, is, this is a subject that must be approached carefully. Remember, you know, there's, there's something in us that's craving this probably above anything else in our life, I think human beings crave love. And ultimately, since we are God's creation, the truth is we were designed to be loved by God. And, you know, not many of us are waking up in the morning depressed over sovereignty, right? We're not waking up going, I don't know, I need to go see a therapist or something. You know, I just... I just don't feel like anybody's reigning over me. You know? we, we're not wrestling with that on a daily basis. But we, we do experience diminishment of love. We, we know what that feels like. So this is, a, this is a critical topic to us. We're quick to lay our hands on this topic because we, we know how much we need it, which means we must approach it carefully. But we, we must also approach it. This is a vital, vital aspect of who any of us are, the love of God. When Paul is praying for the Ephesians, I think this may be in your outline, in chapter 3, he frames the love of God in his prayer for them as a priority. He says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, may grant to you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, here's why, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, right? This is, this is what our lives are to be sunk down deep in. The rooting, that which keeps the tree in place during the storms of life is the root system. You being rooted and grounded In love, may have strength, right? That's what being rooted and grounded in love is going to provide for us. Strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, right? All right, so we're being rooted and grounded in love is going to provide for us the opportunity to know deeply. the love of God, to know the dimensions of the love of God, to know how big and enormous and amazing is the love of God because we're rooted and grounded in it. Now we're going to grow in understanding it. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All right, so there's a progression of thought here. Paul Paul always, Paul's sentences are usually complicated sentences, but if you kind of take them apart... And I were to say, hey, this morning, how many of you guys want the fullness of God? You want to be filled with the fullness of God, right? All of us, hopefully, hands up. God, I want to be filled with the fullness of who you are. Okay, well then, what it's going to take is, let's back up one step from this location. What it's going to take for that location to take place is an understanding, a comprehension of the love of Christ. For you to be filled with the fullness of God, you're going to need a comprehension, an understanding of the scale of the love of God. And and for that to take place, you're going to need to be rooted and grounded in the love of God. So this this topic is vitally important to our lives and how we live. Paul said, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, the demonstration of that love, therefore all died, and that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So the motivating factor of our life is we are a people who are dominated by, influenced, overdosing on, controlled by the love of God. Now I don't when you come to God and you start thinking about whatever it is about God that controls you, that causes you to be reeled in right? You're thinking about doing something in your life. You're tempted to do something in your life. No one's looking. You might not ever be discovered. And something in you says no. All right. What is that? What is it in you that's saying no to that thing? Is it because you were, you were raised in some religious setting where there was a lot of Just moral shame hung on behaviors and you were taught to be ashamed of that and if your mama found out, and what if God saw you? Right, and we're, okay, that's a motivating factor. Depending on the consequence of your sin, I might be happy that that might be the only motivating factor you can get in touch with. Fine, keeps you from that, okay. But there's a greater motivating factor that controls us. Isn't that a strong word, control? How many of y'all like the word control? How many of y'all like to be in control? Come on now. (laughs) But we don't like to be controlled, right? We like to be in control but not controlled. But in this passage, it says that the love of Christ would be so influential, so dominant, so effective in my life that I actually would be controlled by it. So that as I Find walking in a a fallen body, in a fallen world, and temptation all around me, and I have this inkling to go this way, away from God and his goodness. In that moment, I get arrested by the love of God. The effect of the love of God on my soul is for me to become unattracted by that and to be controlled. But interestingly, because what you find when God controls somebody... You end up doing exactly what you wanted to do in the deepest part of who you are. You wanted to be controlled by the love of God. You know, heaven's not filled with people in handcuffs who got dragged there against their will, right? I mean, this image of, well, you know, the rest of the world's having a great time, you know. They're not here this morning sitting in church, (laughs) They probably got blitzed last night, slept in late. You know, here we are, people of God, you know, dragging around our ball and chain, all these rules. Oh, if I could just run what I really wanted to run. You know, if that's your version of Christianity, you know, you, I don't know what you've met, but you really haven't met Christianity. See, what God portrays is a love for his people that overwhelms us. And it captures us. And, man, I'll loosen the screws of my attachments to those things because this is so much better. That it is a controlling dynamic in my life. That's the love of God. So let's be introduced this morning to the God who is love by King David. We'll look at his life a little bit this morning. We'll look at it again a second time, probably in two weeks. But King David, who wrote most of the Psalms, he was constantly seeking to portray the love of God in song, in his word choices. You know, we sing that song, thy loving kindness is better than life, right? There's words in scripture for God's love. Loving kindness is one of them is a rich word. Actually, I started this whole study just thinking, I'm just going to study the word loving kindness. And this thing just blew up on me. So I really just thought I'm going to be real simple. We're just going to look at the word hesed, loving kindness of God, and be a little simple thing. And no, no, it got very complicated quickly. Uh, but that's good because our tendency is to put God in a straw and suck his love through that little bitty opening rather than to be overwhelmed by all the ways that it's coming to us. But David spoke much of the love of God. David Powelson says the psalmist David attempts to talk about the wonder and power of God's love. It is something he tried to do frequently throughout his life. Yet we never get the sense that David felt he had succeeded. He piles superlative upon superlative. He pushes the limits of language. But David seems to know that the love he has experienced from God can never be fully communicated in words. All he can do is invite others to come and taste for themselves. Now, what I want us to do this morning is, is I want us to sort of get the aroma of the love of God from David's life. I want us to look at David. You can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and this one passage will give us several opportunities to encounter God's love in David's life. Obviously, there's much in Scripture about David, so it's hard to just zero in on one particular aspect but this passage will help us to do that. And if David were to sit and say, okay, David, from your life, from your experience in the love of God, David, describe the love of God for us. What kind of words might David choose? And i zeroed in on a few of them that I think are characterized in his life. He would choose words like, God's love is undeserved and unexpected and unearned. I don't think he would use the word unconditional. I know that messes with everybody because that would be the first word we want to go to, right? God's love is unconditional. It's agape love. It's unconditional, brother. Uh, okay. It's a little more complicated than that. Right? When you started studying, you know, almost we just think, well, the word, if I just use the word agape, I'm safe. No, you're not safe there either that word gets used in other ways besides just the love of God, although it is a word that that communicates an aspect of the love of God uniquely, but it gets actually used in the Septuagint in the Old Testament to describe one man raping another woman. Uh, Not exactly a description of the love of God. So there's aspects of God's love that are hard to just corner into something. So I don't think unconditional, and we'll see that why. Now, three other things we're not going to get to today. I think he would describe... uh, God's love as bringing favor and fruitfulness to his life, but not ease. God's love brought correction and chastening to David's life, but not rejection. God's love was, in the end, steadfast and a covenant-keeping love, and you'll see all that from David's life. We won't attempt to do all that today, though. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, the king is referring to King David mm-hmm. later in his life, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Right? Remember God had arranged for the ark to be carried from place to place with the people of God. And he, he lived in, in the tabernacle, which was a tent. It was a portable building for, for God's presence to dwell. Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. <laughs> now, this is just a sidebar issue. This is one of those verses that help you to lower all your expectations about your leaders. Right? And I thank God, my name's not anywhere in the Bible. Nathan is in the Bible giving lousy counsel to somebody. And his words are going to be recorded forever. <laughs> uh, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Nathan, what are you doing? <laughs> Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from, of Israel from Egypt this day. But I've been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, here's here's God's communication to David. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, I wonder about that word choice right there. Wasn't he supposed to be leading the sheep? I don't know. I just wonder what that really meant for God to tell you. You were following sheep around. (laughs) That you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, isn't this interesting? You know, David's wanting to bless God with a house. God turns around in this passage here and says... David, I want to bless you. Appreciate your thought, but I want to bless you. I'm make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, it's interesting that God has a plan in the future, knowing iniquity is going to be occurring. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. All right, can you already see where your straw is getting a little bigger? Because in the very same passage, God says, all the time that I'm relating to your son, it will be within the framework of steadfast love even while I'm disciplining him. As I took, uh, my, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now David is overwhelmed by God's generosity and eagerness to bless him. In verse 18, then the king, David, went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Right? He's rehearsing in his mind where he came from and the amazing blessing of God that's been on his life. And yet, God, you still want to do more in my life? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction from mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Do you, I'm not sure exactly what David meant by that. You know your servant. When I, when I think about what God knows about me, it doesn't make me jump up and down for joy. And when we look at David's life here in a moment, I think you're going to find out, I think this is, a, this is a puzzling moment for him. Lord, you, you know your servant. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought all this greatness to make your servant know it. Right? And David gives away what he knows about the motive of God as to why God has done all this in David's life. And that's really the aspect we're going to try and capture today. But when you go back to to verse 8, how is it that David, who's now going to have a famous lineage, a famous line, kings are going to come from him, and there's promises made to him. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. Your name's never going to go away. As Matt started, I think a few weeks ago, to share with us from the Psalms, this forward-looking promise that there would always be one to sit upon the throne of David. This faithfulness of God. How did David get in this position? Do you understand? This is, this is bigger than winning American Idol. Can you imagine? <laughs> Because who was David before God got a hold of him? He was, he was just a, a young boy chasing sheep in a field. And you know, he was, he was less than that, honestly. Because if you go back and you read how David becomes anointed, God speaks a word to the prophet Samuel. Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. He shows up in town. Everybody weirds out the prophet's in town. What's he here for? Samuel calls a meeting Tells, tells Jesse to bring to me your sons. Now, do you remember the story? Jesse doesn't even bring David. 7 He's got seven sons. So, I mean, you know, i got seven kids. It's easy to misplace one of them. I understand that. <laughs> We've had a moment here or there that, you know, do you have the baby? <laughs> I thought you... Um, So, but apparently David's not important enough to be called to the meeting. Somebody has got to watch the sheep, let David do it. It's just David, he won't be missed, he's not important. And Samuel goes through one son after another and listens for God, no, not you, no, not you. Now immediately, once you've skipped the firstborn, you've immediately entered into some difficult territory. Because everything was designed in Judaism to flow into the firstborn. They got the double portion. They were the source of blessing. So that's why you have these fighting over the birthright and all that stuff that you see previous in Scripture. So once you skip the first son, I'm pretty sure everybody's kind of going, whoa, whoa, what's that? What's happening? Right? Did, did, Did you want God's love to be predictable? Right? Remember that phrase? Already. God has just pulled an unpredictable move and he skips this one and he skips this one and this one and this one and this one and this one one, all the way down until he's run out. Now Samuel doesn't know. I'm out of sons here and I got no word from God. What do I do now? Uh, Jesse, got any more kids? (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah, you know, there's one. David out in the field. Uh, You know, that wouldn't be significant. No, go and get him and bring him. And when David shows up, God reveals to Samuel, this is the one on whom I've chosen to set my love uniquely on his life. That's how David gets in this position. So that in 2 Samuel, much later in his life, God is heaping all these plans and all these desires and revealing to him historically, all these years, David, I've been dealing with your life favorably. You know, there's a reason why you're like undefeated king upon the earth. And people are amazed at your military might because I've set my love on you. Now the question is, why? Now, see, this is where if if you don't have a biblical theology and you try to figure out why does A, love B, and you take human reasoning to that, then what you're going to do is what any of us would do a has found reason in B to love B. And so we're now trying to figure out, well, God loves David because of something unique about David that none of the other brothers had, you see. Hmm. That's not how God loves. And when you realize you're not the most attractive duck, you're actually gonna appreciate the fact that that's not how God loves because God God would have been passing all of us over looking for somebody that he could find something and then he'd say, hey, hey, you, (laughs) not you, you, because of you, right? When you look, I think I put these passages in your outline. This is characteristic of God's love in scripture. When you look in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you find God trying to explain to the Israelites why them... Amongst all the nations of the world, God has shown up in their world in a unique way and similar to David. God makes a covenant with David. God has made a covenant with Israel, a covenant that he doesn't make with any of the other nations. You do realize this, right? This is grounds to take God to court today. If God lived in a democratic society, he has treated one nation with favor in a way that he treated no other. Right, you've got to be careful when you read the Bible. The Bible is not so much a book written to the world as much as it is a book revealed to his people. So you, you have a book that talks about the covenant of God and God making covenant. Oh, no, no, not with everybody, with the nation of Israel. Well, immediately, that's kind of odd, isn't it? Isn't that kind of different that God would do that? Well, then you're asking the question, well, then why? God, why would you do that with that nation and not that one, that one, or those over there? Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. Egypt, right? Here is the question being asked. God, why are you giving special treatment to this nation? Why are you treating them the way you are? Well, uh, because I love them. And then then the, the sentence construction here gets interesting. Why do you love them? See, because what you're looking for is... Because in them I find this and this and this. And I don't find that over here. But God walks into this passage saying, you know, I don't find anything attractive in them. They're not mightier. There's not more of them. They don't give me any advantage in loving them. Well, then why do you love them? Well, because I love them. Is that your final answer? (laughs) That's it. Yeah. I love them because in me is a motivation to love them, and therefore I do. Deuteronomy 10, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Now immediately, I'm not gonna chase this thought But immediately, the love of God just got complicated. Did you notice? Because God has set His love on a people above all peoples. See, if you belong to God, you're part of the nation of God, or you belong to God through covenant through His Son, then When you say God loves the world, everybody in it, and God loves you, those two things don't equal one another. There is a uniqueness to the love of God for his people, that he loves his people above all peoples. So can you see immediately where when we come to this topic, it's not as simple as we thought. And we're just covering one issue here. God setting his love on his people in a way that's unique and effective. Here's what I want us to carry away. God's love finds its motivation in God. It is not dependent on us. God, why why do you love me, God? See, because sometimes you're in touch with all the reasons why God shouldn't love you, aren't you? You know what kind of week you had. You know what you're bringing to the party. You know what's hidden from everybody else. And you're wondering, why? Why does God... God, why do you love me? And God turns around and says, "Because I've loved you." Okay, yeah, I got that, God. But why? <laughs> because I've set my love on you. Now, do you understand the, the constancy that that brings? That whether you look like this in your moral living, because you look like this before God found you. <laughs> And now you manage to do have a few of these every once in a while. And yet God's approach to loving you is not strapped to you. So God, it's not like God loves me, he loves me, he loves me, I'm great. Uh, he doesn't love me today and he doesn't love me for this whole week. And now, but now he's loving me because I'm, uh, God's not tracking with you that way. Hallelujah. He he's found something in him that is rock shore steady, that doesn't do this. And he sets his love on you. And it is unexpected, isn't it? When you're in this trend right here and God's love comes to you looking and smelling and sounding just like it did when you were trending this way and you are blown away and surprised. Like, God, wait, wait, I don't get that. That's unexpected, David, isn't it? And given the fact that That God knows everything, which means he knows the future. One has to wonder, what was God thinking when he chose Israel to set his love on them? Because in the moment he's choosing them, this this is not God's coming to the altar to get married like us, right? And we're just, we're hoping in the future that everything's going to be just great. No, see, God stands in that moment when he's deciding to set his love and equal with the knowledge of what's going on right now is the knowledge of what will be going on. Equal in that moment for God. It's not as though God's overlooking that or it's like, oh man, the book of the future. You know, I put that thing down, I've lost it. I don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah, yeah, you guys, yeah, I'm gonna love you. Yeah, man, what, what are they gonna do to me in the future? No, no, God knows the future. He knows That most of the Bible is going to get written because of the waywardness of these people. Their tendency towards idolatry all throughout Scripture. What about David? Here you are, 2 Samuel 7. You're choosing David. Knowing what you know about the future, God. God. I mean, God, do you know that just a few chapters from now, David's going to stay home from work one day and glance out at a woman and lust for her and not have any control over that. And he's going to commit adultery with her and she's going to get pregnant. And then this guy you're choosing to set your love on, rather than do the right thing, He's going to lie and deceive and cover it up. And he's going to end up having her husband murdered after he commits adultery and lies about it. He's going to commit murder. And, and that's going to get out, God. And the guy you chose for yourself is going to cause your name to be mocked. God, your enemies are going to grab that like a party's going on and going to say what a fool this God is. And your name's coming down. Because of this guy right here. Not to mention all the other little colorful factors of David's life. that He managed to have children who raped and murdered one another and tried to kill him and steal his throne. God, God, do you know what's going to happen with this guy? Yeah. Now, human love, human love, would you have chosen David? Would you stand at the altar and marry somebody who you knew was going to do that to you? Do you get a sense that, that, that God's love is Kadash love? It's other than us? Amen. Right? When the scripture corrects us, it says, you thought that I was altogether like you. We would never have done this. We would never have made these choices. See, because when we love, and oh, learn this, this is the most unflattering thing that I can say to any of us. When we love, it is rare, it is rare when we love without there being something in it for us. It's rare. Can you let there not be something in it for you long enough and eventually you're ready to wash your hands or whoever it is. And in that moment, I'm grateful that God's love is not like my love. Now, because I think God is like me, when I have a history of this, I start thinking God doesn't love me. Why is that? Because I wouldn't love me like that. And we recreate God in our own image. That's not what God's like. His love is unique. There's nothing like it in the universe. It is kadash. Look at this thought from J.I. Packer. Whereas human passions, especially the painful ones, fear, grief, regret, despair, are in a sense passive and involuntary, being called forth and constrained by circumstances not under our control, the corresponding attributes in God have the nature of deliberate, voluntary choices and therefore are not of the same order as human passions at all. When we are passionate to love something, sometimes we love something because we need something from it. Does that make sense? So we begin to love that. It's a a polluted love. It's an imperfect love, but it's a fact of life. Listen, when God goes to love us, there's nothing in him like that. God doesn't need something from me when he sets his love on me, which frees him completely from me that he doesn't become controlled by me as to whether or not he'll continue to love me or not because he, he didn't start this thing off needing something from me. God doesn't need that. So the love of, of the God who is spirit is, not, is no fitful, fluctuating thing as human love is, nor is it a mere impotent longing for things that may never be. <clears throat> it is rather a spontaneous determination of God's whole being in an attitude of benevolence and benefaction, an attitude freely chosen and firmly fixed. There are no inconstancies or vicissitudes or varyings in the love of the almighty God who is spirit. Nothing can separate from it those whom it has once embraced. All right, this, this is where... The apostle John who says God is love says this phrase that I think is just him. It's mind-boggling. Behold what manner of love with which the Father has loved us that, that we should be called children of God and such we are. I mean, you understand this is, he can't get his mind around this kind of love. It's off the charts. It's not like, us. you your right line, it says, God set His love on you, knowing who you've been and who you would be. All right, everybody's got a resume here, right? We're all here. It's a nice building. Got on our Sunday best. This is as good as we get. Right here. But you know where you've been, don't you? Now, some of you hadn't been there for a while, but you know where you've been. You know who you've been. You know who you've been this past week. There are deceivers all over this room. Can I have them all stand real quick? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) <laughs> just just kidding <laughs> was that an act of deception are you trying to fool us about something <laughs> right there are hidden little secrets in lives all over the place that we're just hoping no one's going to find out that we're not going to do something that gives us away That people who have formed an opinion about us will never discover those things. That those who are close to us, their world isn't going to be rocked by what I'm hiding. There's idolatry in this room. Where we have idolatrous desires and we shove God to the side and we get enamored with temporary things. And the feelings they produce for us and the rewards that we can get from it all the while knowing and bumping into it on occasion what we're doing to God, how we've pushed him to the side. We've pushed him to the side again. And then mixed into that is a great deal of laziness where we just all have these great intentions to, you know, to get around God more than we do and to make God more of a priority than we do and to read God's word more than we do. And if you've been saved for 10 years or 20 years, you've sung that song quite well. It's kind of a national anthem of your Christianity. God knew all of that. He knew that there were adulterers in this room. He knew that there were selfish people who would leave a trail of broken people behind them. Heartbreaking brokenness left behind one decision after another that served no one but that one individual. God God knew that before he set his love on you and he knew that some of us would do those things after he set his love on us. And isn't that even more bitter? There's something about us compiling all the sins of our life before we came to Christ and being able to look at that one way but you get let there be major screw ups in your life after you've come to Christ and you feel differently about those don't you yes. but you you should but they become different and they become paralyzing and yet God knew all of that i mean you're only going to travel 4 chapters from chapter 7, you go ahead, turn there with me, to chapter 11. And you're going to find something here of God's love that he promised and he intended to be something to David, knowing what David would do in the future in just a short amount of time. All right, now, let me, let me stir in this word, Unconditional. Is God's love for David unconditional? That's a loaded question. That's almost a Peter question. You're going to walk right into that one. Be careful. (laughs) All right, well, that would depend on how you define unconditional for one thing. But let's just do this because, again, this is where we isolate. We take love and we lop it off like it's an arm from God and we put it over here by itself and we look at it and we get enamored with it and study it and we say, oh, the love of God, and the love of God is unconditional. All right, now if I take that arm and I bring it back over here to God and I plug it back into God, do I say God is unconditional? Is God unconditional? When you read in the Bible, do you find that God is conditional or unconditional? I find he's extremely conditional. Conditional. He's perfect, remember? Listen, if God's not conditional, you don't have this event we're about to talk about in a second called the cross. You don't need it. Because God's unconditional. He's Kesera Sarah. He's postmodern. He's whatever. <laughs> He's whatever. <laughs> I just blew it big time. Whatever. You know, God, I know you made this covenant with me, but I've just committed adultery and murdered somebody. Whatever. Do you think, do you find God's response to man is whatever? I find God is extremely detailed and conditional. Remember J.I. Packer's description? The God whom David is speaking about is one who made the world, who judged it by the flood, called Abraham and made him a nation. He chastened his Old Testament people by conquest, captivity, and exile, who sent his son to save the world, cast off unbelieving Israel, and shortly before John wrote, he destroyed Jerusalem, right? It is, it is this God, John says, is love. Is he, is he unconditional, right? Are we becoming guilty of what Tozer says, where in his unity, he never suspends one of his attributes in order to exercise another, I think we find that God isn't unconditional in the sense that we use that word the way we use that word, right? Second Samuel chapter 11, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, now is God predictable here? You want to make God predictable here? The leader of the nation, the man with whom God has made covenant, has stayed home from work at a time when all the kings go off to war. And the armies of David are going through one victory after another while David's at home watching pornography. I'm sorry, did you want God to be predictable? Did you predict that? Wouldn't you have predicted that one defeat after another was happening in the armies of David, that they were losing left and right because this guy over here is sinning? Right, I mean, listen, I doubt David, I don't, you know, there's not a lot of detail here. I doubt David, you know, if you read the rest of the account there, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. I'm sure he wasn't looking for that. He saw on the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him. He lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Right? I mean, David's a heroic biblical figure here, but David uh, is a man and I'm suspicious, right? Just my nature, I'm suspicious that David wasn't working on battle charts uh inside staying home you know just feeling like he could be better service to the guys out there on the front lines by you know kind of staying at home with the charts and sending word and thinking and strategizing and you know in his innocence he walked out to the window just to get a breath fresh air after working so hard and oops oh, there's a woman i saw a naked woman what shall i do Hmm. i'll call for someone i mean this storyline doesn't fit I'm more suspicious David stayed home on purpose because he knew with everyone gone, it'll be easier for me to watch pornography. I remember, David had multiple wives. One commentator said, David never met a, wife that he didn't want to, a woman that he didn't want to marry. It's very likely David had some lust issues in his life. And he sees this woman lust after her and, and takes action. Now, do you think this is the first time? Come on. is this the first time David had an issue like this? Is, is this the trail that you would have followed on your first time of venturing into an area of sin that's foreign to you? Sure. Sure. You'd have gone ahead and called the woman, made contact personally with her, brought her over to your house, slept with her. You've never done any of this before. But you'd have slept with her. She'd have gotten pregnant. And then you'd immediately had a backup plan. Just in case, because, you know, you've never done this before. So you're going to call her husband back from the front lines. And you're going to invite him over to bring word to you, the king, from how things are going. And then you're going to say, hey, while you're in town, why don't you go ahead and have a, have a night at home. Right? Here's a man who's been out of the battle with a bunch of sweaty men for months. And he's going to come home to his wife. Now, what do you think this man's going to do with his wife? Well, David knows. He's going to sleep with his wife. He'll think the baby's his. I'm good. I'm in the clear. But this guy decides, no, I can't do that. My men are out fighting and laying their lives down. How can I be with my wife when something like that's happening? So he sleeps at the door of of the king. So David's got a backup plan to that backup plan. He'll invite him over. We'll have a few drinks. We'll talk. He gets the guy drunk and sends him home. He doesn't sleep with his wife again. So David has a backup plan to that. Uriah... Go back to battle, Uriah. Here, take this note with you. Don't open it. Just take it and give it to Joab. He'll know what to do with it. Joab opens it up. It says, when Uriah goes out to battle, put him in the fiercest fight you can find. And in the moment that fight gets the worst, back away from him and leave him by himself. And David murders this man. Now, anybody here honestly think this was David's first time? which all the more is amazing, that God is dealing with David the way he is. Now, your sin will find you out, and Nathan comes to David and gives him, remember this story, it's a rich man who took advantage of a poor man, and he makes the story come to life, and it's colorful, and you can really feel the loss of this poor man. And David responds, right? Chapter 12. David responds, with righteous anger. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he did deserve to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity, Nathan said to David, you are the this is what you've done. Remember, David was accurate. He was accurate in describing God. In the righteousness of God, that man deserves to die because he has broken the law of God. A man who committed adultery and murder in the Old Testament was to be stoned to death. This man deserves to die. We keep reading here. God says, thus says the Lord in verse 7, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Skip down to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put Away your sin. You shall not die. Right now, David is in this moment experiencing the love of God. And he would say, the love of God was most undeserved and unexpected. I should have died in this moment. The question that we've asked going into this story is, but is the love of God unconditional? What did God do when he put away David's sin? The Lord has, David, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. Where did he put it? In the whatever category? Whatever, David, doesn't matter, man. You remember the utterance of John the Baptist when he looked up and he saw Jesus Christ walking toward him? And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you want to know where God put David's sin? He put it on his son, Because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is always death. There's a condition. If you sin, death occurs. So it wasn't as though there was no condition here. The condition has been met by another. David's sin has been placed upon the son of God. And he won't die And the love and mercy of God is now going to come to David in this moment. Let me just give you this final thought, Matt. You can go ahead and come up. John Frame says, people sometimes ask whether God's love is unconditional. In one sense, God's love is conditional. For God declares conditions that must be met by those who are seeking his blessings. Some don't meet those conditions and receive eternal punishment. But when God loves someone in Christ before the foundations of the world, God himself meets the conditions so that that person will certainly be saved eternally. To those who belong to Christ, there are no further conditions. Nothing can separate us from his love. In that sense, God's saving love is utterly un. Conditional. Now, out of, out of David's life came rich songs. David wrote songs out of his experience with God. He wrote a Psalm 25 that says this. It's a prayer to God saying, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Listen, this morning, the love of God It's multifaceted, it's deep. It comes to our life just like it came to David's and it comes with words like unexpected, undeserved, unearned, not unconditional. It's just that the condition was met by another on our behalf so that God's love for us could never be broken or disrupted. God has set his love on you. If you belong to him, if you're a child of God, God has set his love on you uniquely. And though your life be up and down and up and down and up and down, any condition ever required for your life has already been met completely by Jesus Christ. what What about my sin? What about all my sins? You don't know my life. Oh, if you only knew. What about my past? What about all that I've done? That trail of hurt people? You just describe me. That was who I was. What if that's who you're feeling? What if you're in touch with the fact that right now there's been sin going on in your life this past week? No one knows about it. And when it becomes discovered, it's going to be a bomb of destruction what about that do you realize the word of the lord to you sounds just like what nathan said to david the lord has put away your sin you will not die the lord has taken those sins and did the same thing with those sins as he did with david's horrible sins he put them on the son of god and all the punishment went right there and there's none coming to you. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have not received, you've heard about the love of God, but you haven't heard of it that way. There's a God who sets His love on you, never to remove it, never to vary from it, even though your life may do this, even though you come to God with a horrible background, that God would collect all of your sin and he would move it out of the way by putting it on his son. See, there's a reason why Jesus Christ went to the cross is because God is not a whatever God. He's a demanding, exacting God. But his love is unexpected, isn't it? that it would come to you and remove from you that sin and place it on His Son and then open His arms to a relationship with you with that sin removed. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never stopped and told God, yes, Lord, what Jesus Christ did, I see He did that in my place. Those were my sins on Him. I don't know all that was going on, but I know my sins, they were on Him. And He was taking my place. Was taking my punishment so that there would be none for me. Now, how do you respond to that? This morning, receive the love of God. Receive it. Open your life to God. Say, God, here's my life. I've never known a love like that. Anybody who's ever loved me has always loved me with some string attached to it. Yet you love me. Receive it. Just a moment. We're going to sing and we're going to honor God and we're going to just dwell in his presence for a minute. You receive the love of God this morning. You have to receive the love of God. It's not enough for you to be told about the love of God. You have to receive the love of God. Open your heart this morning and receive it. Maybe you've never done that. You can do that just by praying and asking God to flood your life with the God who is love. Okay, I don't want to get real, I don't know, environmentalist on you. Just receive the love of God. No, no, receive God. Receive God who is love into your life. Now, he, he's, that arm's attached to a body, so God is a certain way. So it's not just love I'm asking you to receive. This is not just a, a call for you to be hugged. It's a call for you to embrace a person who is love the way we've described it today. Let's stand up together. Lord, as we turn our attention to sing about this amazing love. Lord, I know that many here this morning would be more in touch with their resume, their failings, with their sin, with their choices, with the wreckage of their lives than they would be Aware of your unexpected, undeserved, unearned love. God, this morning, some of these are your children here who have come to question whether you love them, whether you're near to them, for they have failed to recognize the kind of love you give. They're not looking for a love that's not connected to their performance, they're not looking for a love that comes as equally strong in failure as it does in success. I'm looking for that kind of love, God. Oh Lord, this morning, take the straw out of our mouths, Lord, and open the river waters of your love that is amazing to us. It's not waiting for us to have the right kind of day. For you chose us and set your love on us when we were your enemy. Love is that kind of love. It is other than love. It is out of this world kind of love. Oh Lord, replace our small, limited view of your love with an enormous biblical picture of your love. God, as we sing this song, draw near to us because you can, because our sins have been forgiven our lives have been washed and you do not draw near to us, oh God, to condemn us or reject us for you would never do that. So Lord, let your love be a healing love in this place this morning. Lord, let it be a love that captures and enamors us. Lord, draw us near that it might be a love that controls our lives. Lord, may it be that we are rooted and grounded in this kind of love. Lord, may it be that we are growing in our knowledge of this kind of love so that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Open our